Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world who knows that the reason it's cold is because there is a draft in here. I'm Jake Mintz, and that's Jordan Schusterman. Do you feel it? Oh, I could feel it. I've been feeling, I've been, I've been shivering for quite a while now. As you know, Jake, I have been excited for the 2023 MLB draft for far longer than anyone should be. On this episode of Baseball Barbecast, we are going to preview said draft because I don't think it's worth just dropping something Sunday morning and being like, hey, the draft's tonight. Uh, we're both heading to Seattle tomorrow night, but we wanted to give some people some time to digest what is possibly going to be one of the more exciting MLB drafts in quite some time. So the bulk of this episode is going to be previewing that, which begins on Sunday night in Seattle. We will be there. Uh, before we get to that, we are going to talk about the Angels. But yes, this is going to be a draft-heavy episode. That is your warning. That is your, your you know, get excited. I mean, this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm really excited for this episode. If you plan on dying on Thursday or Friday or Saturday, don't listen to this episode because it won't apply to you. Great, great call. Thank you. We're always looking out for our audience. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, but before we get to and, and listen, you'll you'll see here how we we structure this this draft preview. Um, but we do have some news. I know we have all star replacements. We got Colton Kowsler coming up. We got you know Dustin Mays injured again. There's really one injury in one team that we did want to acknowledge on this Wednesday episode and talk about a little bit before we get to our draft discussion. And that is the Angels of Anaheim, the the Angels, Angels of Anaheim. And Jake, this week. And over the span of, uh, what, 36 hours, we had a triple whammy of disaster for the Angels as Mike Trout broke his hand on a swing, handmaid's fracture on a swing, freak injury. Uh, Anthony Rendon, how important is that injury? We can debate that. Fouled the ball off his shin. He's going to be out for at least a bit. He was not doing so well. And Shohei Otani left the game early, pitching due to a blister, which, you know, as far as leaving games early, while pitching, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it is still not exactly good news. At the same time, the Angels have also lost a good chunk of baseball games over the last week, right as we were coming off of one of the greatest months of baseball we've ever seen, courtesy of Otani on both sides of the ball, mostly on offense. And last week, we were like, hey, you know what? Angels, they're good enough to hang around here. Like, I don't know if they're definitely going to make the postseason, but they definitely could. And here we are on Wednesday morning. And boy, does it not feel that way if Mike Trout is not going to play for the next month or more. So uh, where are you at? Where are you at with this uh, situation? Because it's it got dire in a hurry. 
Perry Manassian and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day is where I'm at. This is a tweet from Alden Gonzalez of ESPN, friend of the show. 11.45 a.m. Angels announced Mike Trout fractured the hamate bone in his left hand. 4.40 p.m. Anthony Rendon fouls a ball off his leg and leaves the game. 5.30 p.m. Shohei Otani exits the mound with a trainer. Oh, my. I feel bad. As someone who has been an Angels hater for the last half decade, and an Angels hater for good reason, I might add, I think that the team's inability to make a postseason with Trout and Otani represents one of the most embarrassing and inexcusable roster-building failures in recent baseball history. They were gifted or earned the uh, both of those two generational talents on their roster and then bungled the rest of it. This year is not the same story. And that is why I feel bad this morning. Because Perimanesian, the GM of the Angels, did the work. He did build with the in the situation he was given, right? He built a decent enough big league roster to support Otani and Trout. And unfortunately for him, Brandon Drury got hurt again too. Zach Neto has been out for a while. Logan Ohapi, who they traded for, looked incredible for three weeks behind the plate as a rookie catcher, and then he got hurt. Gio Urshela has been on the IL. Like All of these things that they could not have predicted have not gone their way. And it's unfortunate because even as an Angels hater, I want to see Trout and Otani playing meaningful games in September and October. I also wanted, as I sort of said last week, like regardless of where we think Otani is going after the season, like I wanted to see him go out and at least have one great season in Anaheim with the whole team, right? I wanted to see him be at the front of a a winning Angels season because he certainly deserved that also as much as anybody. And I agree. I mean, I think he had built a team. I mean, there were some points of it. There was definitely some reasons to question it, but it was good enough to be in the mix. And now... The question is, are they going to be good enough to stay in the mix? As we look you know, at the Fangraphs playoff odds, um, today is the first day in, I believe, over a month or so that the Angels postseason odds have been below the Mariners. It was up as high as 47% on June 19th, even you know, 40, 46% on June 27th. That's not that long ago. But over the last two weeks and now with these injuries and with Trout out, um, it, it sucks. Now, I will say the Rendon thing, it's easy to put that in a tweet like Alden says and be like, oh my God, let's run Rendon has not been good. Uh, let's just be, keep it very simple. I mean, he has a 90 OPS plus. He has two home runs. He's getting on base, but he's not an impact player, right? He's, he's, I guess you could still say a good player. I don't really have any sense of what his defensive impact has been, but like, He's not that important, but it's certainly in with that happening, you know, along this string of injuries, it feels like it is part of the same. At the same time, now we look at the roster around Otani and say, what what is the path? Let's let's try to have a, an optimistic view of this because I think the bigger problem is that there's just other better, healthier teams in the American League more than anything. But what is the path here if there is hope for them? Hunter Renfro has to get hot. Taylor Ward has to get hot. Yep. Matt Feist needs to continue hitting above average for a catcher. He's been pretty decent. Mm -hmm. And then they need Eduardo Escobar and Mike Moustakis to turn the clock back and figure some things out. And then they need, you know, Zach Neto and Brandon Drury to get healthy. Mickey Moe. Mickey Moe's got to keep being, yeah. (laughs) That's the thing. Okay, so Mickey Moniak, as much as we love Mickey Moniak, 
is probably not a 162 OPS plus hitter. He is not a 305, 339, 644 hitter. Now, granted, he doesn't really hit against lefties, and that it's most of the well, damage is against righties. Also, what's another part of his uh, statistical line that uh, jumps out that might Four scream? Walks. Four walks to 40 strikeouts. That's where, you know, he is up there hacking and it's working so far. I don't, I, I'm curious what his BABIP is, honestly, but, but we love it. I mean, if, if Mickey Moe is even good, forget 162 OPS plus, that is, that is a win. But I agree. Like so many of these other pieces, like Rahifo has been bad. Like that's someone who I believe could be like a decent player for them. Right. He has not been that. And then on the pitching side, Tyler Anderson was one of their bigger free agent signings, and he's been bad. Reed Detmers has really turned a corner over the Picked last month. He's, he's looked, looked awesome. really good. Yep. So is this team doomed? No. I think the way that they stay in it is for Otani's July to look a lot like Otani's June. And <laughs> okay. that's asking which, quite a bit. Which, especially because now it doesn't seem like he's going to pitch, certainly again before the break, and maybe not. Maybe we'll see him right after the break. Now, I will point out, this is the beauty of him, right? It's like... <laughs> And people have pointed this out, people who followed him in Japan, like he could keep hitting. He he might just hit another 10 homers in his next 10 games anyway. Like it's not, like I don't think the blisters necessarily gonna harm him for being their best hitter. Uh, but it's still the, the bigger issue now is if Trout's not playing, and I know Trout isn't having the best year of his career, why are you ever pitching to Otani ever? Why, why? Right? I don't I mean, you could argue they shouldn't have been in the first place, but you, you have Mike Trout behind him. You're not going to do that. So that's going to be the real challenge, and that's where the Renfros and the Wards are really going to have to step up in the middle of the order because why are we throwing strikes to Shohei at this point? Now, he can hit non-strikes over the fence too, but I just think it's going to be – he's not going to see a lot of pitches to hit. There is a hero riding into town ready to save the day. Mm, a I former so, top, A former top prospect – with a 9.56 OPS in AAA, someone who has been much maligned, someone who has underwhelmed. That's right, my friends. Joe Adele is here to save the day for the Los Angeles Angels of Angels. I hope so. Leading the minors and homers. He homered in like the one game he played earlier this year when he was called up before being sent back to Salt Lake. I'm rooting for him, man. I mean, if 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 talk about if not now when because it the, the skies have opened. The uh, Red Sea has parted for Joe Adele to walk on through and get major league at bats. And uh, this is it. This is this is the time to do it. So I, I hope that, the, I mean, it just sucks. This is just such a, a, an unfortunate way for the season to go out. And of course, the bigger question, are they going to trade Otani? I still don't think so. But I guess if they lose, you know, 13 to 15, maybe we start having that conversation in a few weeks. But I'll, I'm going to pa- I'm going to push that conversation to the end of the month. I agree. Let's watch a couple more Andrew Velasquez at bats before we do anything drastic. Okay, so let's leave the Angels in the rear view mirror, Jordan, and move on to the future. To the draft. The 2023 MLB draft is on this Sunday evening. We will be in attendance. We will not be drafted. Here's what we're going to do on this show. We are going to give you a brief overview of how the MLB draft works and maybe a little insight as to why it is not as big as its uh, NFL and NBA counterparts. Then we are going to tell you why we love the draft as a thing. Then we are going to tell you why this draft in particular is worth giving a shit about. And then we're going to run through some players that we particularly like names you need to know. But let's begin with an overview of how the MLB draft works. Jordan, you love the draft more than anyone else I know. If you meet someone who cares a little bit about baseball and they say, Jordan, why do you 
why do you like the draft? Like, what about the draft compels you? What do you usually say to them? Sure. So, I mean, in some ways, it's an extension of why, you know, I like minor league baseball and why I like the ever-expanding infinite universe of the sport, which is that it's really hard to figure out. (laughs) And I think that is part of part of the fun. And the fact that you can be drafting from this enormous pool of players coming from all these different places and backgrounds and schools and trajectories in a way that I think even in some ways more so than other sports because it's so big and there's so many players being picked. I think how those players separate themselves and how those players kind of stand out over the course of their college or high school careers is really interesting to me on top of the fact that with the bonus pool system, while is somewhat problematic in some ways in the fact that the spending is capped in the MLB draft to the point where teams only have so much that they can spend. It's not like they're necessarily being cheap in a way that some people like to think that they are. It's just a, it's a complicated system and one that there's always another level to learn. And the strategy within that system, I think, is really interesting. The MLB draft is really for the nerds. And I don't mean that in a mean way. If you want to dig in and get dorky and learn the ins and outs of something that's complex, the MLB draft is for you and for Jordan. Yeah, but I will say, and this is kind of what we'll get to in this year in particular, this is one of the more mainstream uh, accessible drafts that we've had in a long time. And I think we know that the league is trying to get it to be more of a, a jewel event that even the casual fan wants to enjoy. And we can talk about why that is succeeding and why that will not necessarily (laughs) succeed to the degree that we think. But yeah, I just think that, and especially now, you know, this is the first year that we've had a draft lottery, uh, you know, instituted as as part of the the first round order. And that's also added, I think, an interesting element that we can maybe talk about because I know that tanking is, is is a hot topic in every sport. But I do think that still like that when you see the bad teams drafting at the top here, like it is still a, 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 a because of the way that we think about prospects now and because of the way that prospects are also mainstream now, it does give a window for fans of bad teams to say, hey, maybe this guy isn't going to be the best player on my team immediately, like in like as, as is the case in other sports. But this is someone that I can look forward to and this is someone I can get excited about. And so I that's, think that, that is also obviously a fun part of any draft. That is a big reason, right, for why this draft is not as big as the NBA or the NFL the players that are picked are not immediately on the teams, far from it. You know, in some cases, the number one overall pick could take three or four years to reach the big league club. And a lot can happen in three or four years. And the likelihood of a top pick being a contributor at the highest level is a lot lower than in the other sports, right? If you take someone number one overall in the NBA and they're not a star, that's a disappointment. If you take a number one overall pick in baseball and they become like, your third starter, that's a win. Yeah. Usually. Well, right. And also, but like, it's not like you have to think far back to examples of franchise changing players that showed up really quickly. And now, sure, Strasburg and Harper are the extreme examples, but right now, right? I mean, Ali Rutschman, it's not that complicated. Right. I know he was considered generational talent, but you could see what those guys can do. Um, even Henry Davis, right? I mean, even Henry, when Henry Davis has has kind of been for the Pirates recently is is another good example. Like these guys can get there faster than than and and certain orgs are willing to push them, and I think that's that's the cool part about it. And this year especially, there are players at the top that could move really quickly and could impact the big league teams sooner than the average first round pick or first okay. overall pick. Okay, so how does the draft work? Very simple. Uh, depending on how bad you are, you get certain odds in the lottery. 
all the ping pong balls go in and they are selected and that's the draft order. Every single pick in the first 10 rounds is assigned a dollar value, is assigned a bonus amount. That the, the total of all a team's picks added up is the total amount that they are allowed to spend on the draft. So what that means is, let's say my total bonus pool is $17 million. If I want to take the number one overall pick and give him, you know, 10 or 11 million and then give everyone else relative peanuts, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I can under, I can draft a guy what's called under slot Mm -hmm. first overall, pay him below the slot value and then kind of spread out the savings Mm -hmm. to other picks along the way. And what this system does is it creates a situation where we're not getting all the picks necessarily in talent value. You'll often see players, usually high school players, drop a little bit past their talent amount because but they'll get paid way more than their slot later on in the draft yeah and that's where if you really wanted to see the town order you generally organize the signing bonuses once they are all signed but in general i mean it is still it's not like it's too too crazy it just allows for more negotiating that's going on during the draft and before the draft between agents and players so that the players feel like they can get the amount that they want and the teams can sort of decide okay we're willing to pay more here because there's a player available that maybe we didn't think was going to be. And what that means is that when you hear rumors at the top about the Pirates not wanting to pay for Dylan Cruz, for example, and we can talk about that, that's not the Pirates being cheap. That's the Pirates deciding we would rather spend our $16 million on this player plus this player later that we wouldn't be able to do if we give you know eleven million dollars to Dylan Cruz. That's what they're that that is a a value proposition that they have decided. You can disagree with that. You could say that's stupid. Just take the best player. That's that's a totally reasonable criticism, right? That's fine. But that is not them deciding. That's not this is not a Bob Knighting thing. Oh, they're being cheap. That's not what is happening here. All the it's essentially fake money because they're being decided. This is how much money you're going to spend. All the teams are going to spend the amount of money that they have in their pool. That's just how the draft works. There are many opportunities <laughs> to critique the Pittsburgh Pirates for being cheap. This, unfortunately, or fortunately, is not one of those opportunities, right? Yeah. Would I rather buy a super nice car and a relatively average house or like a pretty nice car and a pretty nice house? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't afford either of those things, but you get the point. And that's kind of the conversation that goes around picking someone number one overall and is a big reason why this draft is very compelling. Because in previous years, most years, you get one of two scenarios, okay? You get a no shit number one overall guy who is like a generational talent. Think Adley Rushman, that's Harper, that's Strasburg. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot, right? Or not a lot, but that happens. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's no clear number one overall talent. You take somebody, right? What we have this year is like three to five borderline generational guys at the top. And what is most compelling is that even three or four months ago, we thought we had the one in Dylan Cruz. And Dylan Cruz, who has been famous since he was 13 you know, playing in travel ball tournaments and could have been maybe a first round pick three years ago uh, before he, you know, he pulled out of the draft and said, I'm going to LSU because I would like to win a national championship in 2023. And he did that. 
he at the start of this season was he was the guy. He was the guy. And there are still some people that say he is the guy and this is not complicated. However, with the emergence of his teammate, Mr. Paul Skeens, who throws very hard and where he wants to throw it, <laughs> which aka he's a really good pitcher, and uh, Florida outfielder Wyatt Lankford, who we can talk about. We have three, with the addition of two high school hitters we'll talk about in a second, legitimate, strong candidates to go number one overall in many other drafts. Not any other draft. Everyone says that well, clearly we don't feel that because Bryce Harper would still be going number one, I think, in this draft or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But these are all excellent candidates you would feel great about picking number one in a lot of drafts. And that is what creates not just the intrigue of who is going to get picked, which is why you would want to tune into this from a television entertainment perspective, aka the opposite of what we just had in the NBA draft. <laughs> but also, it is an interesting actual debate, not just of who will go one, but who should go one. And I think that is what makes this year in particular so compelling is these five guys at the top. So we're going to talk about those five guys in just a second. Paul Skeens, Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, Max Clark, and Walker Jenkins. But before we do that, Jordan, let's take a quick break. And we will return with the truth about the 2023 MLB draft. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world. And I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Neither of us have ever been drafted. Maybe this is the year. Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah, it might be. Let's hop <laughs> into the top five because there's a pretty clear top five in this draft. Mm -hmm. And if you want to watch the draft on Sunday night, it is, I guess, important to have a brief understanding of who these players are. So we've mentioned the name Dylan Cruz a couple times. Mm -hmm. So let's tell you a little bit about Dylan Cruz. The first thing I want to say about Dylan Cruz is that when Dylan Cruz was in high school, I heard his name on many podcasts. And when you hear the name Cruz, Chris, you want to come on for a second? Producer Yo. Chris, Australian Chris. When you hear the name Cruz in a baseball context, how would that be spelled in your head? C-R-U-Z. Correct. And how well, is this spelled? C-R-E-W-S. That is super important to understand, everybody. For a long time, I thought it was Dylan C-R-U-Z. Dylan Cruz is a white man with zero uh, Latino heritage, as far as we know. It is C R E W S, like Terry Cruz. No Z to be found. <laughs> Chris, uh, yes, Dylan Cruz is a, a Florida man through and through. And as I mentioned earlier, he could have been a a you know first round pick a few years back, and he decided, you know what, no, like he was not going to be a top ten pick, but he could have gotten two million dollars. Out of high school. He was very, very good. One of the best high school players in the class. He goes to LSU. He has an unbelievable career at LSU. Capped off this season with one of the more dominant statistical seasons. Certainly in the first half when he was hitting 500 through like 30 games. And then down the stretch, ultimately culminating in a championship with the LSU Tigers. The reason why people think Dylan Cruz is so good is because when you watch him hit, 
he, you know, if you just look at him, he's not necessarily a first guy off the bus guy. Well, we'll talk about with Wyatt Langford in a second. But when you watch him on a baseball field, you're like, holy shit, that guy knows what he's doing, particularly in a batter's box. And the degree to which the consistency with which he he hits the ball hard is, is staggering. And we saw it in person earlier this season. We saw it in Omaha. It is such an, an incredible command of the strike zone, an understanding of what pitchers are doing to him and what he's trying to do back. It's so impressive and so mature. And people that have seen him now for, you know, seven, eight years have been saying the same thing for a long time. He can do the things that are very difficult to teach. You know, adjusting in the zone to pitches in different parts of the strike zone to get the barrel of his bat to the baseball to hit the shit out of it. That is something that is incredibly difficult to develop. And Dylan Cruz has an innate ability to do this. Mm -hmm. So that skill is a huge reason why he was the consensus number one overall pick heading into the year. Now, the skepticism with Cruz, I would say, is two three two things. Like, why not Dylan Cruz? Why is he not Bryce Harper, right? Mm-hmm. One is the power, right? It's good. It's not great. It's very good. And yeah. what that means is there's an overall ceiling to what people think Dylan Cruz can be at the big league level. He is unlikely, and maybe this is unfair to say, I think he is unlikely to ever be the best player in the world, right? I think he is pretty likely to be one of the best 25 in the world, Mm -hmm. but I think he is unlikely to ever be the best player in the world. And part of that is because there is skepticism about him being a center fielder at the big league level, or at least being an above average center fielder, a plus center fielder at the big league level. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned about the power, I just said hitting the ball hard. He is hitting the ball hard. His average exit fields are crazy. But the top, top, top end combined with a mildly concerning ground ball rate that was higher than you would expect for someone who put up the power numbers that he said. Is that a problem with his swing? Is that a problem with his approach? That's the kind of thing I'm less worried about. I feel like he has the aptitude to fix that in pro ball. But yeah. yes, the top end power is not quite the same. And you mentioned center field. I think there are teams that think he could stick out there, but he's not the fastest player you've ever seen. And especially now when we talk about the the best players in baseball, there usually is a power speed element. Dylan Cruz did not steal very many bases in college. And that's where he's not necessarily impacting the game. So like Julio Rodriguez, Mm -hmm. when he was a prospect, there was doubt about him being a center fielder, right? Mm -hmm. But the whole time he was fast. And so if he, there was like the possibility that he might figure it out one day and then they put him in center in the big leagues and it's like, holy shit, I know that he worked to get faster as a minor leaguer, right? That that was a part of his process. But he gets to the big leagues like, oh, no, 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 Julio could play center. Dylan Cruz doesn't necessarily have that ability and that's maybe why there's a cap to the ceiling. Let's move on from Dylan Cruz. Oh, I guess general vibe, uh, Florida man. Uh, his dad was around uh, the, the College World Series, camo hat probably has a boat, bought cigars for the whole team. Uh, that's Dylan Cruz, like baseball player. He, yeah, he's not, he checks every, you know, boring <laughs> baseball player box. Very, very focused on being a very good baseball player. Not a Correct. whole lot else going on. Wyatt Langford. Let's talk about Wyatt Langford. Mm. Wyatt Langford, outfielder from the University of Florida. <laughs> if Dylan Cruz is not the first guy off the bus, he might be like the eighth. Wyatt Langford is very much the first guy off the bus from a baseball perspective. He is a physical freak. Yes. And this was really, uh, I think, made clear to us when we saw him up close in Omaha. His physicality, particularly the lower half, it's not complicated. He played football. Football was his main focus in high school. 
And thankfully, he decided to focus on baseball, where he did not play. I believe he got four at-bats as a freshman at Florida. Now, Florida's really good, so there were plenty of talented guys ahead of him. But when you see what he's done over the last two years, you think, how in the world was this guy ever down the depth chart for any reason whatsoever? And while he doesn't necessarily have you know, the innate ability... I guess it's interesting because when you compare it, it's like, what's more impressive? A guy like Dylan Cruz, who has clearly been one of the best hitters his age since he was 13, or someone like Wyatt Lankford, who is a physical freak who has significantly more raw juice than Dylan Cruz, more actualized raw power. He is lifting the ball consistently. Maybe not necessarily this, you know, natural ability to see the ball in the zone and, and, and you know, barrel everything up because he hasn't been doing it for nearly as long. At the same time, you see the numbers he's put up. They've been almost as good as Cruz over the last two years, and that's with not even nearly as many reps. So that's where you can argue Langford is even more impressive and has even more upside because you could say he's just getting started here, whereas Dylan Cruz has just been this good for the whole time. And you could say, how much better has he really gotten? I know that sounds ridiculous, but again, we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about that number one pick, you want to find a reason to shoot for the moon, to get the best possible player. And what Langford has done over these last two seasons and what he looks like. Now, he's another guy who's plus speed, even though he's enormous. Center field, probably even less likely than Cruz. But the offensive ceiling might be even higher if you do think he's kind of just tapping into it right now and the kinds of home runs he was hitting in Omaha. It doesn't look as smooth and natural. Like it's almost, it's not quite like a, you know, a softball swing, but it's very, it's not necessarily the most, like what you would teach but it, it fucking works, man. That just crushes the ball. It is the best version of asking the best football player at your high school to try out for the baseball team. Yeah. Is kind of what he looks like, except yeah. he's maybe the number one overall pick. Thing to watch here for Wyatt Langford, Jordan. Wyatt Langford got engaged, according to his Instagram, in December. Hmm. Okay. Oh, boy. Are we getting like a new, bigger engagement ring? <laughs> Now that he's about to get paid $7 million, how do you think that went down? Oh, you know, man. You know I mean? It could be $9 million. I mean, if we're talking a lot of carrots here. Uh, I don't know. I won't speak to what his uh, lovely fiance prefers. Let me um, say that the wedding is going to be way sicker <laughs> than what it maybe would have been a year ago. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, last year, by December, we had a pretty good chance. In December, we were like, he's probably going, you know, top five, seven. Now right. we're talking top one, and that's a different conversation. Here's what I have to say to Wyatt Langford. Get the band and the DJ, my friend. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Paul Skeens. Mm -hmm. Paul Skeens is the most famous name in this draft. You've probably seen videos of him throwing incredibly hard for the LSU Tigers over the last couple months. He has developed a evil villain hand, like handlebar style mustache. He is, according to many scouts, the best pitching prospect, the best college pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg. And I should remind you, that's a good thing. Or Jordan. Eric Cole, which or is Eric more relevant Cole. to Pirates fans, <laughs> maybe Correct. thinking about this conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's as good as it gets. And Let me say uh, this. Let me yeah, say this. Go ahead. 10 years ago, I think Paul Skeens goes number one, and no one thinks that hard about it. Mm -hmm. The industry thinks about pitching and the risk associated with pitchers and pitching development a lot different than it did a decade ago. Can you expand on that a little bit, Jordan? Yeah. I mean, it's not just, oh, pitchers get hurt. I mean, that is a, a certainly a big part of it. But again, when you're, when you're thinking about comparing the opportunity 
to spend. This is what this is why the draft is so interesting. It's not just oh, is pitching important? Everybody knows pitching is important. Everybody would love to have a Paul Skeens. It's not like at this point, there's not that much doubt about how good he is. It's just when you have other players like this available that we just talked about in Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Lankford, like, and you talk about what is going to more likely impact my major league club for a long time without you know, getting injured or having these derailments that often happen for pitchers, that's why it is a tough conversation. It's possible in a, in a weaker draft, this he would be obvious this year because he's that good and the risk is worth that swing, right? But that's the issue. And I think the other thing with Skeens too is it is a relatively short track record. You know, this is a guy who was not a super top high school recruit. That's in part why he ended up at Air Force to begin with as a two-way player, a six foot six catcher uh, who was also who was more of a hitter than a pitcher. We knew that once he got to LSU that they would be more likely to use him on the mound. We didn't necessarily again, if you rewind six months, Paul Skeens was considered, or I mean, even in fall ball, people were like, holy shit. But if you rewind to before he gets to LSU, the thought was, okay, this is a first round talent. You know, it was not, this is a generational pitching prospect. And so when you say that you say, okay, is these 15 starts we just saw, is this really Paul Skeens? I mean, I think yes, right? But as you mentioned, the risk associated with that, the risk associated with guys throwing this hard as starting pitchers, you don't have to look far, right? It's not, it's not anything he's doing wrong. The mechanics are good. The work ethic is great. He keeps great care. Like all of the makeup is fantastic. Like none of that is, is concern. It's nothing he's doing wrong. It's just the nature of the beast. And so it's it's doesn't mean he's not going to go in the top three. He could still go number one, right? But that's that's part of the conversation. And I think the teams, there is a sense maybe, a narrative about how because big league clubs are better at pitching development maybe than hitting development now, they can take someone in the fourth round. Like it's easier. The easiest thing to develop in minor league baseball is probably velocity. Now, are you developing it safely? Are you developing it with control is a different conversation. But the idea that, oh, you could take someone in the fifth round with command and teach them how to throw hard, that has kind of percolated throughout the industry. I just want to go through, Jordan, the uh, Cy Young voting from last year. Okay. In the American League, the top 10 in AL Cy Young, five of the 10 first round picks, Justin Verlander, Alec Manoa, Shane McClanahan, Garrett Cole, Kevin Gossman, right? Mm-hmm. Otani and Framber. <laughs> Definitely don't fit into into those boxes. Okay. Well, Otani does. Otani does. Otani I mean, does. Like Otani's basically yeah. a first round pick, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Shane Bieber, Nestor Cortez, the other names. Uh, Dylan Cease, right, is a good example of someone later in a draft. In the NL, Max Fried, Aaron Nola, Carlos Rodon, Kyle Wright, all top picks. Mm-hmm. You know, Zach Gallen, a great example of someone who's not. Corbin Burns, an example of someone who's not. So mm-hmm. even though it is easier easier in quotes to develop a pitcher that you take later on. The best pitchers in the world still tend to be the best pitchers in the world in college or high school when they're younger, right? As a whole. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is interesting and definitely a part of the narrative here with Skeens. Mm -hmm. Who would I take number one overall? I would take Paul Skeens. Mm -hmm. That is where I fall on this. I think he is just, again, like there are all these things that go into it, but man's just a hoss. Like (laughs) Paul Skeens go brr. Yeah. No, I I, I hear that. And you know, the baseball draft is also different because generally you're not drafting for need. But I also think that sometimes that's a little bit overstated. I think that when you look at farm systems and you say, oh, they are really lacking in, you know, teenage hitters, 
you could see teams try to take more high school hitters. Like that is a real thing. I think they're now, but are you drafting for big league need? I would say generally no. However, you have a unique case right now with the Pirates picking number one, where, you know, as we've seen this year, a lot of ups and downs, they're not necessarily good yet, but you can tell they would like to be good soon. And you know that their teams will talk, you know, we just talked about the Angels who are going to draft guys that are going to help them sooner rather than later. They're not going to bother, you know, wasting their time with, with a high school player. And we could talk about the two high school players in this conversation here in a second, but that's why I do think like if you're the Pirates and you're like, what do we need? What do we have at the top of our farm system that's coming and that has helped? What have we seen already? Henry Davis. Nick Gonzalez, right? O'Neill Cruz when he comes back. Like they they've got those hitters have started to fill out that lineup. That rotation right now, there's still a lot of question marks, right? It's not, uh, the Mitch Keller development is great, but that's the kind of thing where it's like Skeens does fit that timeline so incredibly well. Jake, you look perplexed about something. The Pirates have someone in their depth chart that I've never heard of in the big leagues named Osvaldo Bido. Yeah, Osvaldo Bido, he pitched for Aguilas. He was a big Aguilas guy. I'm wearing my Aguilas hat. Wow, what a fake fan. Um, but th- also, you're so right. That is also a concerning thing. Right. <laughs> that Osvaldo Bido is in the is in the, uh, in the the depth chart. So Skeens, Cruz, Langford, the top three picks in the draft, right, uh, belong to the Pirates, the Nationals, and the Tigers. Jordan, what is the likelihood that one of Paul Skeens, Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford goes number one overall to Pittsburgh. Oh, man. I mean, I I am... Okay, so this is where you have to start thinking about bonus demands, as we mentioned earlier, and the agents involved here. And Skeens, Cruz, and uh, Langford have three different agents. Um, Cruz has Scott Boris. So this is true. This has been... This is true in the... You know, we think about Scott Boris in relation to free agency and extensions, but it's true in the draft, too. And Boris usually gets his guys the most money. That's what he's the best at. He's the best of all time at that. And so when you hear rumors about, oh, Dylan Cruz doesn't want to go to Pittsburgh. Oh, Dylan Cruz doesn't want to go here. Oh, so the Boris client is trying to go here. It most of the time has nothing to do with whether the player wants to go. It is entirely negotiation. It is entirely Scott Boris thinks I can get the most money from this team. And maybe that team isn't picking first. And so in this case, because Scott Boris has a wonderful relationship with the Washington Nationals, <laughs> he probably is more confident he can get the most money for Dylan Cruz at pick number two, more than pick number one, more than anything. It's possible the Pirates say, I don't care. We think Dylan Cruz is the best. So we're taking you, and what are you going to do? Go back to school? And for what reason, right? Like, the leverage is very interesting in these situations. I do think, though, still, because what we've seen the Pirates do in recent years, and because it is so close, I do think Cruz is the third most likely to go here. Between Skins and Langford, I have no freaking idea. I have no idea. I don't think... I think the bigger question is, would Cruz or Skeens go second if they take Langford? That's, I think, fascinating because Skeens checks everything that you see from the Nats for Strasburg, but Skeens isn't the one with Boris. So I think that would be super duper interesting. And I have no idea how that would go. The notion that Cruz could go third, if you'd said that to us a few months ago, is a wild. I think the Tigers would happily take him. But that's kind of where I'm at with the top there. I, th- I At this point, I am... I am I would not say this a month ago. You know this. At this point, I actually do think Cruz is the least likely of those three just because we know how the Pirates work. And I think that they could see that they could maximize their draft with these two other guys more than Cruz and then take another good player uh, later on. Wow. But I don't know. I know. That's why you should tune in. That's why you should tune (laughs) in. That's the fun part. (laughs) Now, there's that clear top three of college players, but just behind them, there are two very notable high school names that we're going to educate you on now. And that is Max Clark and Walker 
Jenkins. The fourth overall pick belongs to the Texas Rangers, the fifth pick to the Minnesota Twins, and the likelihood that Clark and Jenkins fall in that four and five range is pretty high. Mm -hmm. And so we think it is important and necessary to dive a little bit into these two names. Let's begin with Walker Jenkins, who is undeniably the less famous Mm -hmm. of these two. Jordan, give me a brief elevator pitch on him. So he fits more, I would say, in the Dylan Cruz mold of he has just been the best hitter his age since he was like 12. And so, you know, growing up in in an interesting part of North Carolina, kind of near the coast, not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't call it, it's like not a baseball hotbed. We're about to talk about a kid in Franklin, Indiana, but it's not like he's near a giant metropolitan area. At the same time, North Carolina scouted very well, and people have known Walker Jenkins for a very, very, very long time. But what is interesting about him is that for high school players, the most important summer is the summer before your senior year. And Walker Jenkins was injured his summer before his senior year with a hamate bone injury. He's just like Mike Trout. Oh my God, see Walker Jenkins, Mike Trout, they're the same. And so in that, that ultimate evaluation period of the summer before your senior year, we didn't actually see Walker Jenkins that much. Now he didn't really have that much to prove. But while he was not doing as many events because he was injured or was playing and was just not as good as he was in the past, Max Clark was tearing it up. Max Clark was raking at every single event. And Max Clark kind of burst on the scene a little bit later, but has also been known since he was about 15 or 16, playing on some Indiana travel ball teams, playing up. He was in eighth grade. He was the best player on the field playing against kids like Colson Montgomery, who you know became a first-round pick uh, recently. Like He was just the best player. And so Max Clark is more of a center field profile. Walker Jenkins is more of a right field profile. And so while Walker Jenkins is maybe losing his momentum towards being the obvious top player in the prep class, Max Clark is killing it. And not only is Max Clark killing it, Max Clark is making sure you know that he's killing it. Because Max Clark is the best example of a Gen Z superstar. This dude has leveraged his social media in a way that is both so impressive and so shocking for a kid in Franklin, Indiana. That um, combined with the fact that he is arguably the best player in the top in the class, this is not. There are some other kids who have a lot of Instagram followers who are not that good. <laughs> he checks every box of someone, and just the, kind of the persona. He's got the whole eye black stuff. He's got like extreme. You know, he's had his hair color has changed over <laughs> over the years, but at times it has been extremely bleach blonde. It is a very kind of iconic look. He knows he wants to be like Bryce Harper, but also. He is more engaging and kind of he's more used to he's more used to charming a, a general audience than Bryce Harper ever was, right? And so that's what makes Max Clark so interesting. Meanwhile, Walker Jenkins is doing his thing, and then this spring when he was healthy, he was unbelievable. And now everyone's like, no, 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 it's still Walker Jenkins. Let's not complicate this. And so that's why this debate here between these two is almost as interesting as those college three at the top. To put it in perspective for people, Max Clark has 334,000 Instagram followers. I know compared to Bronny James, that is a drop in the bucket, but Matt Olson has 118,000. Also, okay, Bronny James is LeBron James Jr. <laughs> that is true. Who's Max so, Clark's dad? So, so Max Clark is just the kid in Franklin, Indiana, okay? And so you know, the, the head start, like think about you. He had to... Build it up on his own, right? Right. And, and he's done it. And he's, 
like 30,000 followers behind Julio Rodriguez, <laughs> who has the MLB machine and a big league team and this charismatic smile. And he's the star of the sport. All these things. He's at the big league level. And he's not from Franklin, Indiana. You know? He is like in that same realm of notoriety for kids. And that's super cool. And then, and I, and I, so again, I, I, you know, I live in Eastern India and I went and saw Max Clark play and just seeing how the kids reacted, just like the local kids. Cause they know it's not just the kids following on Instagram who live in California or Texas or Florida. Like the kids in Franklin are like, holy shit. Like we have a legitimate celebrity playing in our town and, and it's reflected in, in how his games were attended, which is so cool. Uh, but it is this interesting debate because then you get from the makeup side, you have the crust, the old scouts that are like, I don't like this act. I like Walker Jenkins. He keeps his head down. He does blah, 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 blah. And it's like, that's not, that's like, okay. Okay. If you want to have that opinion, okay, you're, you're get, get used to it. Right. It's not like, we're only going to have more Max Clarks coming along. All right. That's the thing you have to kind of start recognizing. He's going to be the first in a wave of this kind of guys. Right. Drew Jones had a little bit of this, but that's closer to the Bronny James thing. Right. Because everybody knew Drew Jones because his name is Drew Jones. Max Clark's a different beast at the same time when you say, okay, which of these players do I trust more? Which of these players have we seen perform more against the highest level? They've both done excellent, right, on the showcase circuit. They've both done excellent in their high school competition, obviously. And it's interesting. I could see it both ways. I think that Walker Jenkins is an amazing player. I think that the ceiling with Clark, again, when you talk about that power speed element, he's more of a maybe a plus-plus runner, very likely center fielder, whereas Jenkins, you're buying the bat through and through and through. Now, some people would say that's what you're buying. That's what you should be paying for at the top of the draft. I could see it both ways. I lean Clark slightly. Maybe that's my Indiana bias. But both of these guys, again, in any other draft, you'd be so excited to take them one or two. And they should be there at four or five or six or seven. We'll see. Jenkins, I'm going to oversimplify things. Jenkins is more of like a Jay Bruce vibe. And Clark is more of what, like Michael Harris uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Pete, Pete Kerr Armstrong is the one that I've yeah. necessarily been mentioning with Clark, but in a way that he's kind of ahead of where PCA was by the time he was drafted, PCA has kind of grown into his power and his offensive ceiling. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, um, that's, that's fair. just yeah, like, I'm just saying like for a vibe, not sure. for the type of player. Um, okay. Those are the top five guys, Skeens, Cruz, Langford, Clark, Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Let's take a very quick break. Actually, it'll be the same like this, all of our other breaks, because that's how the show works. And when we come back, <laughs> we should go. We're going to take a long break. We're, we're going to be sit gone some for... hold music for four and a half minutes, and we'll be right back. <laughs> we're going to go away for three weeks, and we'll be back after this with uh, a couple more things about the draft, and then we'll say goodbye. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman. See, I told you it was a short break. Before we say goodbye, we're going to hit on two more major themes from this year's MLB draft and talk about 10 other interesting players who we are compelled by, who will go at some point over the first two days. But let's begin with this narrative. Typically, in the first round of the Major League Draft, about half the players taken are pitchers. That will not be the case this year. There are six pitchers who we feel pretty confident will go in the first round, which would be one of the lowest totals in the history of the draft. Part of that has to do with how good the hitting is, but part of it is certainly that the pitching crop is underwhelming in 2023. Yeah, and again, like you said, this is, I, 
I doubt it will be. It's certainly going to be more than this six because as we just mentioned, like it's the pitching. There's a reason it's half. That's that's one half of the support, right? <laughs> but when you just look at the pure talent and you look at the rankings, there, like you said, there's just those six. So Skeens is certainly, obviously, right? You have Rhett Lauder and Chase Dolander, two college pitchers who we just saw in Omaha. Dolander from Tennessee, Rhett Lauder from Wake Forest. Hurston Waldrop, another guy we just saw in Omaha from Florida. And then there's two high school pitchers, Noble Meyer from Oregon and Thomas White, a lefty from Massachusetts. All of those guys feel like they will very, very, very likely go in the top 30 picks. Okay, great. That's not uncommon. But after that, when you try and say the next name, for people in the industry, when you say another name, the response is, oh, like, is that guy a first rounder? Like, does that guy, no one else after this six screams first round pick, but some will, there will be guys that will end up being first round picks that, you know, we could, I'll talk about one of them here in a little bit, but it's like, that's the weird part is who is the industry? Who are the teams identifying as, Hey, actually this guy is worth taking 25th, even though he's ranked 60th on all of the industry rankings because teams, some teams want pitching, need pitching. Obviously, every team needs pitching. And so they're going to have to take them at some point. But the flip side of that is that there are so many good hitters that trying to parse the order that those hitters are going to go in is absolutely fascinating and impossible to project. And for dorks like me, makes Sunday night so exciting to see the sequence of how these guys go. The Rhett Lauder Chase Dolander conversation is also interesting. Heading into the season, Dolander was considered the number two player in the draft behind Dylan Cruz. Yeah. He had a real shot to go maybe number one overall. Mm -hmm. But this year for Tennessee, even though he had a solid season, his breaking ball took a notable step back. Now, what Dolander has that not a lot of the other pitchers in the draft, including Skeens have, is the secondary metrics on his fastball. He has the carry, he has the angle, he has the ride, he has the spin. He has all that type of stuff that, you know, big league analysts nowadays love to see. And that's a huge plus for him. And a lot of scouts think that if you put him in an MLB development system, someone will fix his breaking ball and he'll be fine. He'll be a good big league starter. Louder lacks that high end that you see from Skeens and Dolander. But if you saw him throw in the College World Series, you get the vibes, right? He knows what he's doing. His command and control are really good. He is an elite changeup for his age, and for his level, and he's a, a top-notch competitor with very impressive athleticism, who's already developed at a very notable rate since getting to campus at Wake Forest, and you can kind of project past that. Those two are both projected to go in like the 7 to 11 range, mm -hmm. maybe 6 to 11, I guess I'd say. Seeing who goes above the other and which teams take them will play a really big role in their development. Like if the Rockies take either of these guys, I think that they're sort of fucked because the Rockies have a horrible track record of developing pitching. But Whereas if the Marlins, <laughs> if the Marlins take someone like this is the other reason why I love this is because, and this is true in, in other sports too. Oh, the fit. Oh, this, how's he going to work in this system? But that's true in baseball, right? Oh, the Orioles drafted a hitter that I'm not, I'm only, oh no, well, he's probably going to be awesome. You know, like you can apply that to certain development systems. Now the flip side of that, if the Marlins take one of these batter, one of these, you know, top college bats. I'm like, God damn it. Like, I really like that guy. <laughs> He's going to suck now. And so then it's like, okay, philosophically, if you're the Marlins at 10, is it smarter to lean into your core competency and just take another pitcher, take Noble Meyer, top high school pitcher, take Dolan, whatever. Or do you say, 
Well, maybe this hitter will be good despite how bad we are developing them. I don't know. That's an interesting debate. Uh, but that's also part of it, which is really interesting. We mentioned Hurston Waldrop. He's one of my favorite guys in Florida. Yeah. He'll probably in the 10 to 20 range. His stuff is crazy. Some people think he's a reliever. I'm a big fan of him. I'm a believer in him as a starter. But that's another one where, depending on where he lands, could have a big, big, big impact, right? If the Angels take him, he might be in the big leagues in September as a reliever. If someone else takes him, he might be one of the best starting pitchers in baseball in 2026. So that could certainly impact uh, his development. And then Thomas White, I guess the last guy we haven't totally touched on, kind of the back half of the first round. That is a name I've known for three or four years, even as yeah. someone who's not locked into the draft. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's, you know, a tall lefty who goes to a prep school in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he was out there dominating on the showcase circuit at a young age is notable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't have a great end to his spring. But again, his track record's so long that I think he's going to end up going in the first round anyway. Um, not before Meyer. I think Noble Meyer is, is clearly the best high school arm and he'll go weirdly the same high school as Mick Abel. The fact that a, a Catholic school in Portland managed to produce the two <laughs> best high school pitchers in the country, you know, three out of or two out of four seasons is crazy. Uh, but very, very impressive for, for him. And he's, he's certainly uh, appealing. So it's not just that the pitching side is underwhelming. The hitting side this year is particularly talented and particularly deep. So drafts obviously vary year to year on the quality of the player. The eighth best hitter in 2022 might not be the eighth best hitter in 2023. And that's certainly the case this year. There's a huge group of talented high school shortstops who fit in from the back half of the first round to like the front half of the third round. And they're all shortstops and they all want $2 million and no one's really sure the order that they're going to go in. Especially because some of them might want $3 million. Some of them might want $1.2 million. So that ultimately might determine how Some much of their parents might care about school. Some, some of the of parents, parents might, care about might not. Exactly. Some of their parents and, might be rich. And part of the calculation there is, is a lot of things. It's, all right, where's the kid coming from? Does the parents already have a lot of money? Do they think, oh, I can go to school and be a top 10 pick? In three years, very possible, right? There's a lot of versions of this, right? That was part of the Dylan Cruz calculation is, oh, I could get $2 million now. Why would I do that if I believe I can get $9 million in three years? That's a much more easy calculation. If you think it's the difference between a guaranteed $2 million now versus a possible $3 million in three years, you might just take the money now. But as you said, it's such a deep list of shortstops and all these different uh, range of, of how teams view them. Some of them are more offensive-based. Some of them are safer defenders and are more likely to stick at shortstop. Of course, everybody believes they're a shortstop in high school. Not all these kids are going to stick at shortstop. Jake Jake was a shortstop in high school. Look at him now. He's fine casting. So, like, of course, they all think they're shortstops, but some of them will are more likely than others. But the point is, is they each team is going to have these 10 high school shortstops listed um, in different orders. And if I if I just wanted to you know name a couple of them just to to give you a, a general sense like I mean Arjun Namala who's a fascinating guy I'll get to him in a second he's he's kind of at the top of that that next tier kind of it's like Walker Martin Sammy Stafura Kevin McGonigal George Lombard Jr like there's so many of them and it's like oh am I, do I like that guy more like we'll see I have no idea which guy's going 25th which guy's going 45th but we are going to find out in just a few days let's finish up we're each going to share five players that we have yet to mention who tickle our fancy. Go back and forth. Some names that you should give a shit about on draft night. I'm going to go first. Go for it. Outfielder Enrique Bradfield Jr. from Vanderbilt. If you are listening to this podcast, chances are you've seen his highlights. 
He is like the fastest player in college baseball. He is an elite. He's not just really fast. He's an incredible defender. He has Mm -hmm. a chance to be the best defensive center fielder in the majors right away. Mm -hmm. He falls somewhere on the Billy Hamilton to Kenny Lofton spectrum of what type of player he is going to be. The teams that like him believe in the bat and they believe there's real pop and strength there. The teams that are not interested don't think he'll be able to barrel up major league pitching and won't touch him with a 10-foot pole. If he makes the big leagues, he's a top 15 entertaining ball player immediately just because of how dynamic his speed is on both sides of the field. And the rule changes are a big part of this too, right? It's much easier to envision a player like him having a real impact at the major league level now that steals are cool again. I would expect to hear his name called in the 12 to 20 range. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting. His totally fascinating and where he ends up too. Oh man, I'm I'm rooting for him. I I would be terrified. Admittedly, I would be terrified to take him in the first round, but I am certainly I am certainly rooting for him. Um, and then by the way, for my first guy, I'll just say Dylan Head because Dylan Head has a very similar profile as a plus plus runner, high school, everything. But the difference with him is amazing center fielder, Chicago area, so kind of an interesting competition level. He is sort of like Bradfield when Bradfield was coming out of high school, except way higher offensive potential, and so. Dylan Head shows a lot more physicality than the way that Bradfield does, but same thing. Plus, plus runner, plus, plus defender in center. Going to steal a shit ton of bases. Like that style of player, but you're betting that you can actually, you know, there's more offensive potential there versus, you know, if he makes it to school, I don't think he will. Um, but if he made it to school, I believe he's committed to Clemson. He could be, have a Bradfield type impact in college, which would be incredibly fun. Um, right. so that's my Dylan, Head, Dylan Head as a runner is more like a linebacker, free safety type runner, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Enrique Bradfield is more like a track sprinter. Like he's, yep. it's a skinnier build. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second guy is Chase Davis, who is an mm-hmm. outfielder from the University of Arizona. The track record of hitters from the U of A is not great. And a lot of that has to do with how much the ball carries in Arizona and how mm-hmm. offensive numbers are often inflated. And Chase Davis, who led the Pac-12 in home runs this year, There's certainly an element of that. That being said, there's a lot more belief that this guy can really freaking rake than some of the other hitters who were taken high out of the University of Arizona. If you look at Chase Davis's exit velocities, now I know exit velocities were super wonky this year in college baseball. It is right up there at the top of the draft. And the combination of that plus a guy whose walk to strikeout ratio was below one. He had more walks than strikeouts. That's a very, very rare profile in the draft. So I'm excited to see where he goes. And Chase Davis is not exactly an unknown quantity. He was very famous in high school. And Perfect Game had him ranked as the number one incoming freshman in 2021 ahead of Dylan Cruz. He was the only guy ahead of Dylan Cruz when he got to campus. Took him a couple of years. He wasn't playing that much in the way that Cruz was. But this season, an incredible year. And and I agree. I think he is very likely to go in the first round. Yeah, he's like 12 to 25 range. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, my next guy, I'm going to go with a college hitter, another college hitter, Kemp Alderman. This is just the big brute strength guy. Uh, Ole Miss. Ole Miss sucked this year after winning the national championship last year. But this dude, talk about exit velocities. And I don't care how juiced the ball is. If you're hitting balls 115, even with a ball, like all the time, whether the ball is juiced or not, he arguably has the most raw power in the entire class. And he's kind of been looked over because it isn't on. he doesn't look like as good of an athlete, but like he is a totally reasonable and solid corner outfielder. He hits the ball as hard as almost anybody you're going to have at this level. And I just think he's being undervalued. Like, it's not like the strikeouts were crazy either. He did it in the SEC for multiple seasons. He's young for the class. 
Izzy P. Alonzo, that's like a 5% chance outcome, but I just think he's being undervalued, and I think he is going to go some point on day one. I'm calling it now. He is going day one uh, in the second round at some point. I'm going to take Bryce Eldridge for my next guy. Here's the good part. Six foot seven, Northern Virginia kid who you maybe have heard of because he wants to be a two-way guy, right? I want to be the color commentator on the Sunday night baseball broadcast, okay? That doesn't mean I get to do it. And Bryce Eldridge, despite like he's much closer to his dreams than I am to mine. Let's be very clear about that. Yeah. Bryce Eldridge is probably just a hitter, a very good, talented hitter with a lot of potential. But there's a lot of skepticism about whether he's anything more than a thrower on the mound as a pitcher. A good comp here is not Shohei Otani. It's more Jack Caglione, who is one of the best players in college baseball this past year, who hit 30 bombs from the left side and then walked the farm in the College World Series as Florida's number three starter throwing gas. Okay. Will a team let Eldridge do the two-way thing? It depends on the team. Is he going to try and get to a team that's going to let him do it? We'll see. Is he willing to take less money for the opportunity to do this? We have no idea. Everything he said publicly is that he's committed to it, to trying to go uh, go both ways. I think if someone puts a big check on the table in front of him and says, go hit bombs, he'll take it. But it's definitely a storyline to watch. Speaking of go hit bombs, uh, Nolan Shanuel, first base outfielder from Florida Atlantic, is my next guy. Statistically, the only hitter in college baseball better than Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford this year. Just a stupendous statistical record um, in his three years at FAU. But it's three years at FAU. And some people are like, is this guy really this good? He was merely good, not great in the Cape Cod League. But like, he's basically breaking statistical models in terms of the numbers he was putting up. And some people really believe he's just straight up one of the best hitters in the draft. So he could go as high as 10. He could go as low as 30. I have no idea. I'm excited to see which team believes in this bat and how fast they push him. Last year on my way home from the All-Star game in Los Angeles, I sat next to a kid at a restaurant in the airport with a perfect game backpack. And I introduced myself because I also was holding a baseball glove because I'm a fucking loser. Turns out that kid was Ralphie Velasquez. Ralphie Velasquez is a top, probably top two rounds, back half of the first at the highest, first baseman slash catcher from Southern California. And it was funny. Like, you meet a kid who plays baseball at the airport. You're like, oh, that's so cute. Like, what do you do? Oh, where do you play? He's, you know, one of the best high school hitters in the world, right? Right. And so we got to talking. It was good conversation. Nice kid. The biggest question with Ralphie Velasquez, he thinks he's a catcher. I would say 10 years ago, he wouldn't be. But if you think that the automatic ball strike shit is going to happen at the big league level and it's worth shoehorning Ralphie Velasquez into some, you know, into catching, you can make that argument. And mm-hmm. so if that makes him a back half of the first round guy instead of a top half of a second round guy, really good left handed bat with power projection. That kind of changes how you view him. But I yeah. wanted to shout him out because I ran into him at the airport. No, he's he, and he's one of my favorite favorite bats in the class. And usually Southern California hitters with that track record do go go pretty good. So um, that's a really interesting one. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with Ralphie. All right, two more. Uh, I am going to go with, you know, let's, let's hit our LSU boys here. I'm going to go with Ty Floyd, a right-handed pitcher at LSU 
who could be one of those guys that just shows up in the first round, even though for most of the season you'd be like, oh, yeah, second, third round, really good special fastball. How good is everything else? Looked fantastic in the College World Series. What did he strike out? Was it 16 or something? 17? Was it 17? Some crazy number. Amazing down the stretch for them. Mostly just throwing that heater at the top of the zone. And, uh, and yeah, he was healthy and delivery's pretty good. He was known pretty well in high school. Like, I think this is exactly the kind of guy where teams are just going to throw their hands up and be like, screw it. Like, we want an arm, and he's clearly the the next best guy on our board. And I think he could end up going in the 20 to 40 range, even though it, it really didn't seem like that way uh, to start the year. So I would just keep an eye on him as, as a pitcher who could go higher than maybe we expect. I'll go with someone further down the board, Trey Morgan from LSU, who was the first baseman and three-hole hitter for the national championship team who produced for three seasons in the SEC. And you see a profile like that, who's an elite defender at first base and a really good athlete. And you say, that looks like a first round pick, right? Well, the issue with Trey Morgan is that he makes a lot of contact. It's not particularly quality contact. His exit velocities are pretty mediocre and he hits the ball on the ground too much. And because he's a first baseman, it raises the bar for how good he needs to be offensively. Could Trey Morgan make the big leagues and be like James Loney or what Evan White was supposed to be? Yeah, maybe. Love the Loney comp. Yeah. But like, what is it, right? What, like the the best case scenario is very bizarre for Trey Morgan. That being said, what an entertaining, fun player to watch. And I hope he ends up in an organization that maybe can squeeze a little bit more juice out of the bat. Yeah, you're hoping for, right, James Loney offense and just like the best first base defender in the league. Uh, but that's a weird profile. <laughs> so, I mean, he's not going in the first round, but I think there will be teams that are very excited to get Trey Morgan in their organization. Yeah. Like he is the kind of guy that some people will hate and enough people will love that he will, he will get sufficiently paid. I will finish off here with someone I think we're both fascinated by, and that is high school shortstop Arjun Namala. Arjun Namala from Strawberry Crest High School in Florida. Arjun Namala is uh, probably the strongest case for the third best high school player behind uh, Clark and Jenkins. And he is a shortstop. He is at the top of that gaggle of high school shortstops. And people do believe he can actually play shortstop. What you're buying on here is two main things. One, he is one of the youngest players in the class and teams love that. I believe he doesn't turn 18 until like November or October, um, which is very rare for high schoolers um, that are this good. And also just the bat speed is ridiculous. And when you watch his BP and you kind of see what he's kind of built, I mean, you look at the video of him taking BP even last year compared to this year, he's already started to fill out and it's just everything you could kind of dream on in a high school hitter, kind of that Correa style body and just like speed, not, not quite as tall or as big, but just that frame and the bat speed that he's producing has been amazing in private workouts. And then on top of all of that, he has the incredible background, which is that both his parents moved here from India right before he was born. And like all of his family is in India. He grew up going back to India, playing cricket. Like this was not someone who you would think would end up be playing baseball, but because he grew up in Florida and because he was a talented, athletic young lad, he got a baseball bat in his hands and was playing baseball at a young age. And now here he is. Um, I just possibly going to be a, you know, top seven pick and one of the top prospects in baseball is very, very cool. The draft and baseball as a whole does not look like America. You know, we can talk for a million reasons, right? And it is, in my opinion, one of the things about the sport I love that makes me the most uncomfortable and disappointed, right? That we don't, you can't turn on the TV and see America. 
mm-hmm. like you can in some other sports. Namala is a very interesting example of, of where you can, right? You have a huge wave of Indian immigrants coming to the States, like between 1998 and 2010. In that time, there's a huge wave. And he is the children, he's like the representative of the generation of those immigrants. And I think this is something we're only going to continue, hopefully, to see as we go further into the 21st century. People from different backgrounds, a lot more Asian Americans getting mm-hmm. drafted higher in the in in the league, right? Mm-hmm. A lot more Indian Americans too, and that's mm-hmm. just good for the sport. We want people who look different, who are not. No offense, like fewer Walker Jenkinses, <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. We want more Arjun Namalas. Yep, hundred percent. So definitely, and just seems like an awesome kid. So very excited yep. to see uh, where he ends up and and what the next uh, what the next step is for him. That's the draft. My friends, make sure you tune in Sunday night. It's on ESPN and MLB Network. I would highly recommend, no ads, watch the ESPN broadcast, (laughs) not the MLB Network broadcast. It's better. Yes. Well, we right. We don't work. We work. We work for Fox. So, and there's no Fox broadcast. But I will be bringing plenty of draft coverage to FoxSports.com. If you want to read my full top 30 rankings, first mock draft, have another mock draft coming this weekend. You can check all that out at Fox Sports. Um, and we'll, I mean, we'll, again, we'll be podcasting in Seattle and I'm sure we'll be covering, we'll do a draft recap pod. So you'll hear all of that, but we hope you enjoyed this look. If you have any questions, hit us up on email DMS, always are open baseball, at gmail.com. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing this episode. As always, we appreciate it. Jake and I are heading to Seattle tomorrow night where we will record a podcast in the same place on Friday morning. Uh, kind of looking back more at the, the end of the first half here and focusing on MLB before we turn our full attention to all-star week weekend and all that it entails but thank you all for listening thank you jake mintz and we will talk to you all on friday serious xm podcasts